sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. Welcome to the show again, Ken. Oh, it's great to be back, Trey. It is always a lot of fun to do the show, and today I think what we're going to lead off with, Ken, is a story that I don't think is going to get a lot of traction in a rational or a civil way, if it really gets much traction at all, because there's numbers involved, and that is the deficit for 2019. And I think this is going to be, and this is something that uh, Mike and I have talked about on the show as well. This week, uh, we got the numbers back. The deficit uh, increased to $984 billion for 2019. That's uh, 4.6% of the GDP. Now, for listeners, it's worth understanding here the difference between the deficit and the national debt, right? So the deficit is how much in the red the country is in one particular year. It's the the amount we're short in terms of revenue versus spending. Uh, Debt, on the other hand, is how much the government owes as a result of all those yearly deficits or surpluses calculated. And we generally calculate that as a percent of the GDP. Now, what I think is a little bit of interesting context here is that, of course, we always haven't always had this. So how has it kind of fluctuated? Well, if we kind of go back to the 90s, we actually had surpluses in the end of the Clinton area, uh, the Clinton era, uh, 69 billion surplus in 98, 126 billion in 1990, uh, 236 billion in 2000. And then as we move into the Bush era, that's going to change as we move into the aughts, wars, depression, and a number of uh, increased spending items are going to bring the deficit up. Uh, and in the largest time, recent times, the largest deficit spending was actually uh, during the Obama era from 09 to 12, where every year it was over a trillion dollars. goes back down at the end of the Obama era at about $438 billion, uh, in 2015, and now it's been trending up. Uh, and, and that has been the trend for the Trump presidency. And the big reason is, well, defense, Medicare and Social Security. Uh, they've all gone way up at the same time as the Trump tax cuts have gone into effect. As a matter of fact, uh, this year, it looks like defense spending is closing in on a trillion dollars all by itself. So, Ken, this is this is a big issue for the country. It's something we've been talking about a lot, but I think it's confusing for listeners, and I think there's some conflicting positions on it. So what do you think about deficit spending in general? What do you think about this in terms of Republicans being, well, for most of it in control, and, and Trump is the president? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I am a Keynesian, um, uh, like a lot of Democrats are, I guess. So I don't think deficit spending is always wrong. Um, but the time that it is wrong is the time like now when we're uh, more in the boom rather than in the bust. So, you know, if, if you have if you have a recession or depression, um, deficit spending, from my perspective, is, is, is the right way to get out of that. Um, but then you have to offset that uh, so that when you're when you're in good times, when you have low unemployment, low inflation uh, like we have now and we're there's really no immediate need for a stimulus. Um, it's not the time to be doing deficit spending. So now uh, Keynesians, by the way, is an economic position that argues that uh, the Fed, the federal government ought to basically kind of 
cool when you have too much of a boom so that you don't have an, a boom, these boom bust cycles and then uh, flood the market with some money during busts. In other words, you're trying to kind of level it out through governmental monetary policy. Uh, so now that is kind of the Keynesian position. But now, Ken, one of the other kind of backgrounds to this, we were talking about the, the deficit, but the debt itself it really hasn't followed the pattern that kind of a true Keynesian would even hope for. Although we, I think we kind of disagree. I'm not, a, I'm not a Keynesian on that front. Uh, uh, probably, maybe clearly we'll talk about it. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, we're, we are now in 2019, uh, the debt is at 79.5% of the GDP. The only time this has ever been higher is during World War II when it hit its peak of 106.1%. So even as a Keynesian, do you think the fact that we see this steady increase means, well, we're not even seeing kind of the Keynesian hopes of balance? So what do you think about that in that kind of longer term view? Well, the so we did, as you started off by saying, have surpluses during the uh, Clinton years. Um, and I will give some of the credit for that to the Republicans because I think it was really the combination of the Gingrich Congress and the Clinton presidency um, that, that really made it possible to, to um, bring us into a surplus uh, with both spending cuts and tax increases. Um, but you know, it was George W. Bush who started us on the current path of profligacy because he gave these big tax cuts when he came in, which was at a time that we didn't need a stimulus. Um, these were still the very strong economy that he inherited from the Clinton years. And, well, and he, I, mean, I mean, he also I mean, the amount of defense spending increases dramatically during the Iraq War. Of course, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, that's right, right. No, that's right. And and I mean that. Um, although I was against the Iraq War, um, of course, it is true that if you're fighting a war, then you're probably going to have some deficit spending on that. That's not for Keynesian reasons. That's just for the reality of that's, you know, you have to spend a lot more at once to fight a war, then you're probably going to raise taxes all at once. But uh, but I do think Bush, Bush brought in some successive tax cuts at times when a, a Keynesian would have said, now is the time for tax increases, as Clinton did, um, not not for tax cuts. Um, and then uh, and then you have, you know, we did eventually have the um, the, the crash in 2008, um, I will also go ahead and blame that on Bush and say it's because he didn't regulate Wall Street properly. Um, but once we had the crash, we had an enormous wave of unemployment and a stimulus was practically the only way to get us out of that. So I, I think that's when the Keynesian would say you need a big stimulus. And also the, the Obama, well, first the Bush stimulus and then the Obama stimulus because there were two. Yes. Um, they, one they in 09 and one in 10. Uh, uh, oh, 08 and 09, right? Um, 08 was when Bush was still president. Right, and you were talking right. about his yeah, cut. Yeah, yeah. well, yes. no, but then, then his his. So they passed the first uh, um, emergency spending stimulus bill while he was still in office. Yes, and then the second, yes. the second bigger one after Obama came into office. Yes, you're, um, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, and and those were both actually about fifty percent tax cuts and fifty percent spending. So the Obama stimulus, the biggest one, which was eight hundred million, uh, that was four hundred million in tax cuts and four hundred million in spending. But I I think that was appropriate, or maybe even not big enough. Um, because um, we had a huge amount of productive capacity in the economy that wasn't being used because of the the, the sudden steep uh, recession. And so the, the Keynesian would say, well, if you've got underutilized capacity, uh, underutilized human capacity, underutilized uh, industrial capacity, um, and, and the, the, the private sector's not spending um, because you're in a depression or recession, then the, the government can can pick up that slack by spending. But that's really limited to those kind of times. I, I think it's worth doing even when it adds to a, a debt, when you have um, a sharp recession or a depression, um, 
But the key is that you don't want to keep growing the debt all the time because what you should be doing is when the when the sharp uh, recession or depression passes, you gotta you gotta start um, getting the the, bu- the budgets balanced again. You know that's never actually happened, and you have to go all the way back to right as Nixon's taking office in '69 to have the last um, real uh, uh, surplus in any particular no, no, year. Not, not true. Clinton had it uh, two or three years. Oh yeah, that's so what I'm saying. So once you get out of the Clinton era, right? Oh, Clinton, so you're yeah, absolutely yeah. right. So Clinton had it for actually four years in a row. He has yeah. four years in a row. Um, right. If you give him credit for uh, the 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 first year that Bush comes into office, which I think think you ought to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you go back before Clinton, uh, you know you had to go back into the to the 60s. Yeah. Uh, before you have that, so. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like even as a Keynesian that this idea that we're going to have uh, any kind of uh, balanced budget is ever happening because whenever you're in whichever party's in power, they either want to increase spending on their particular pony for Republicans. It's uh, it, it's the defense. Right. It continues to increase year after year. And on, on, the, on the Democratic side, it continues to be social programs that uh, simply aren't long-term sustainable unless somebody's willing to raise taxes at a level that's simply not going to pass. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to, um, I don't, I don't agree. It's both parties. I think it's only Republicans that do that. Um, so Democrats um, do sometimes big programs like the Affordable Care Act under Obama, and that didn't add a penny to the deficit. It was fully funded. Uh, you know, all enough taxes were levied as part of the Affordable Care Act to, to pay for the whole thing. And, and I think that's typically um, how Democratic, uh, when you've had Democratic Congress, I mean, historically, that's not the case. Democrats have been in control of both branches. They could have brought that down and they didn't. Well, they, they did during the Clinton years. They did, as you just said, in the 60s during the Johnson years. Um, uh, so I, I think they mostly that was have. one year. Well, when I mean, all of the current all of the current um, unfunded tax cuts have come from Republican administrations and Republican congresses, whereas all of the, the spending programs that you're talking about, um, they've been funded. I don't I don't think they've been unfunded. Well, I mean, the, the one of the two of the largest items that continued to uh, fund the deficit was the the initial of um, Social Security, which was never funded. It, it was it was never a balance. Social Security is a pay as you go system that mostly worked. It's it's only um, you know there have been a few times in history when the the payroll tax had to be increased to keep it working. Um, but right now, the challenge is primarily um, a, a dem- demographic bulge. Yes, with the baby yes. boomers. And the, when the baby boomer generation passes through, um, you know, it, it may need to be, there may need to be a little bit of underwriting and subsidy to keep the program solvent through that baby boomer generation. But then when it gets to be my generation after that, the generation X, you know, it'll it'll easily it'll easily be self-funding. It's 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 but only it was, because you've got okay, sorry, one generation. Oh, I say one generation that's very large is going to is going to put some strains on the system. But as they die out, it comes right back into balance again. But as we come out, we actually have a continued uh, deficit in the number of people being born. So the same problem, I mean, you get through the balloon and you still haven't fixed the fundamental problem that you're having, which you are rightfully pointing out is you have it being pay as you go. Um, But so your argument is, is that you think that if Democrats had been solely in power, that we wouldn't have a have have debt? Yeah, I do think that actually. So, but they were in power for significant periods of time and debt increased. I mean, again, the only, 
uh, time that's going to stop is actually when you rightfully know when it took Democrats and Republicans kind of doing the thing they don't normally do and agreeing on during the Clinton years. Yeah, but you know, you had it. You had some times in the '30s and '40s. Well, when De- when Democrats were in power, primarily Roosevelt, where the challenges were extraordinary. You had the Great Depression. You had World War II. So that that did require a lot of um, uh, uh, deficit spending. But um, after that, um, you know, the, the the U.S. was mostly paying down the the debt from the depression and and World War II, you know, going into the fifties and sixties, and the the tax rates were very high uh, in the in the in the fifties and even into the sixties uh, to pay that down, and um and then but you were still you, even in the fifties yeah. all uh, except for you know in, in except for fifty one you have primarily uh, deficit spending now much teenier than you have today. I mean, you're talking somewhere in the in the the two billion to six billion range as opposed to what we're talking about the trillion. Um, uh, but you don't you don't have a, a steady pay down of the debt during uh, the d- Democrat control. Well, you you don't want I mean, you don't want to you don't want to always be running surpluses. I think it's it's good to run a little bit of a deficit because, you know, you start creating different kinds of political problems. Um, like if the government starts having too much of a surplus, they got to figure out what to do with the money. Are they going to invest it in the private sector? Are they going to unbalance uh, private sector competition by putting money in one thing or the other? So I think the very, very small deficits you're talking about in the in the 50s, you know, might as well be considered surpluses or balanced budgets. It's those are those are trivial uh, deficits. But um, but the 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 idea of really big deficits, um, we mainly get that from the the tax cutters, which which have been Republicans. All tax cutting costs a lot more money than any of the programs really that that, that um, Democrats have sponsored. And Social Security is You're talking actually, about, I mean, I mean none, of the, uh, none of the tax cuts have crossed the trillion mark, which is where your social, your major, two major social services stand at. The, the, but the, 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 you're talking about Social Security and Medicare? Yeah, I mean, so I don't disagree with you that tax cuts ha- have well, cost Trump, significant money. Um, the Trump tax but, cut but they, was but one, they're not, one point. They're not bigger than what we're spending in, um, per year, not, I don't mean, so, uh, in, in social services. No, the question isn't whether they're bigger than what we're spending. The question is whether they're bigger than what we're spending minus what we're taxing to pay for those expenditures. So, I mean, we do pay big payroll taxes to pay for Social Security and Medicare. And so to the extent that um, the spending is paid for, it doesn't cause a deficit. Um, But the tax cuts purely cause deficit. Okay, so I see what you're arguing is, is because you're cutting. But I mean, I guess what I'm suggesting here is, is that you're arguing that because you're cutting uh, the income, that's the only time you can see that as being a deficit spending. But if you're if you increase the base and the amount of uh, social uh, services that you're offering, even if you keep taxes similar or at a rate, you effectively are creating a larger deficit. So I mean, I I guess that's where I'm a little confused here. It's only if it's unpaid for. So let's let's use the Affordable Care Act as an example, right? The Affordable Care Act does cost about a trillion dollars a year, but it also raised taxes by about a trillion dollars a year. So it contributes nothing to the deficit. Well, that one particular item may not. Yeah, but, they, but that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that's typically the way the Democratic spending bills have operated. So I guess I Democrats disagree on have, that have, point, because again, if, if that was always the case, then we would see closer to zero deficit in long terms when uh, Democrats have held office and we don't. Well, 
We do. I mean, the last time that um, so Clinton was having, in fact, surpluses. Yes. And yes. O- o- Obama came in and, um, and, you know, came in at a time when we'd had the biggest recession since the Great Depression. And so that's not a time that you'd expect to see a surplus. But but after after the initial two years of very, very high deficits, which I think, a, you know, a Keynesian would say were appropriate for those years. You come Obama, down, you come down to come about down. 400 and uh, well, his last year, you're going to get, you know, uh, 438 uh, billion. Yeah. Yeah, the point is just the trajectory was downward. So it's not it's not perfect. And sometimes you have to go in the other direction because you might have to respond to economic conditions on the ground or to sudden military needs. But but during the Obama years, the trajectory was to shrink the deficit. Um, uh, you know, it went in the direction of he inherited a recession which required high uh, uh, deficits and he he moved in the direction of reducing those deficits every year. I mean, I won't disagree that, uh, you know, Obama has had uh, had deficits come down from his early years where he and um, George W. Bush have major stimulus acts. And, you know, we can we can debate the the, the warrant of them. Um, and, I, and I also don't disagree that we are seeing deficit spending uh, during the era of, uh, of Trump. But it's a I, I, what I'm arguing here is it, it's a combination of you have to either continue to hold spending even or lower it um, at the same time as you raise taxes, or you have to cut it more dramatically if you're going to cut taxes uh, to to attempt to have a, a, a long-term downward uh, budget trend. And I, and I don't see Democrats yeah. making that a priority. Um, well, out, they have, out, I mean, again, outside yeah. of, of the Affordable Care Act. No, Which the even Democrats then have, is interesting uh, math, but continue. They have made it a priority. I mean, so so first of all, remember that Democrats are mostly going to be Keynesians, so they're going to. They, we do believe that de- deficit spending can be appropriate in certain kinds of economic conditions. So what you really have to look at is what are Democrats doing during the, the good years, not what are they doing during the recession years, because yeah, we we do we do favor. Um, deficit spending during the um, recession years. But but during the many good years that we had during the um, Obama and Clinton administrations, the deficits were reduced each year. So each year they were moving towards uh, getting closer into surplus. They were cutting um, spending more than they were, um, you know, more, 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 than um th- than they were um uh then the tax ta- you know I'm, I'm trying I'm stripping of my tongue here but the, <laughs> the way right. the way yeah, the way that the way that a deficit uh, goes down every year as it did most years during the Clinton years and most years during the Obama years is by um either making spending well, to be, cuts to be fair or to making Clinton, tax it wasn't increases. just going down for him he he actually had surplus so he didn't just bring surpluses. it down he actually had surpluses whereas during the obama years yeah you're right there, there's a trend down but we don't we don't cross much below the the half trillion mark no but but all 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 that someone can do is is move in the correct direction right i mean they can't they can't suddenly close the a, a trillion dollar deficit but the, the the key here would be to try to move things in the right direction so if you're if you're moving in in if you're in boom years you should be moving towards reducing the deficits from the previous year if you're in bust years you can be increasing the deficit from the previous years and that's that's a that's responsible fiscal policy yeah and now now in in the case well i mean we'll have a we'd have a bigger philosophic disagreement there but so i won't hit into that right. uh, but on the on the fact that if if that was being effective then as we move from talking about individual year deficits to um the debt 
we should see the debt leveling off uh, and decreasing like we did during the Clinton years, as opposed to uh, continuing to tick up as time goes on, you know, here just, just shy of 80% of the, uh, of the GDP. Um, so I, I guess I don't I don't have nearly as much faith that uh, that long term democratic control uh, will see that come down in large part because I, I don't think I mean well I don't think Republican they take it seriously only as a um, an election year ploy um, but I don't see either party making any taking that seriously in a, in a meaningful way. Then how do you explain that that deficits went down almost every year under Obama and and they went all the way into surpluses under Clinton? I think during Clinton, what we saw was that both parties for once were willing to actually compromise on an issue. Uh, Republicans willing to change their position on uh, revenue gathering at the same time that Clinton was willing to step outside of party lines to increase the economy through um, uh, uh, trade policy uh, and as a result of and to not increase uh, spending. And as a result of those two, so you saw one side giving up on spending, you saw one side willing to come up on on revenue, uh, you saw Clinton being willing to negotiate some of the largest uh, uh, treaties, NAFTA, and then as a result, we see surpluses. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that account, but I think one important thing to note here is that um, the the but Republicans I seen, when either party controls it, I don't see them taking the same kind of drastic steps that that kind of compromise required. Well, not as drastic, but uh, I don't know that drasticness is required. I think just moving in the right direction is required. And Clinton was already doing that even in his first couple years in office when he did have uh, control of Congress. And Obama, um, you know, I think he. It's hard to know. I mean, he. During the first two years when he had control of Congress, those were the absolute depths of the of the Great Recession. So I don't think it was a priority then. It shouldn't have been a priority to balance the budget when you're in the depths of the Great uh, Recession. But I will say, I think the um, that deal that, Cl- that Gingrich made with Clinton, that's that was the last moment in time before it became an article of faith for um, Republicans that they would never agree to a tax increase. Right. And so the the, the concept of a bargain like that I think Democrats will still would still do a bargain like that, but Republicans will never agree to any tax increases. Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I'm I'm not sure how to speculate on what either side would uh, would be willing to do if the other side would give in. But that's oftentimes, I think, the the conundrum that we find ourselves in. Uh, but I think we might need to move on because we've yeah. been. Uh, t- <laughs> we've been this talking is good. About that, for yeah. A yeah. that was we good. Though. Fireworks. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, as much fireworks as we have. We we yeah, have this right. very. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let, let's just talk about this. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh my goodness, that's funny. Uh, so I, the the other really big news that I think we need to to get to this week that's a little bit less uh, that was that's kind of the under the radar story and you can see that we think a lot about that the, the less under the radar story this week is the impeachment investigation continues uh, and the the some of the big changes happening this week that I'm interested to get some of your perspective on Ken is that the House Intelligence Committee issued subpoenas to three top Republican Trump officials. Uh, Acting Budget Director uh, from the Office of Management and Budget and uh, Counsel from the State Department. Now, all three of them had originally declined to voluntarily testify. This is on the same week that there's been reports that John Bolton might be in negotiation to testify. 
And it's also in the week, and this is a little bit more under the radar, and, I, and I'm really curious to see what you say about this, when Lindsey Graham came out to try to rebuke the House from the Senate. Because uh, on Thursday, Graham's going to put forward a resolution. Uh, he's argued he's going to condemn the House impeachment qu- I- inquiry. By the time it comes out, though, it's really just kind of a plea for a more transparent process. And even that kind of pulled back uh, resolutions only going to net 44 of 53 Republicans in the Senate to sign on. Uh, and, and it looks like a bit of a weakness there. So what do you see this week in the impeachment? Because I've seen, I think there's some, some maturation occurring. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it, it feels to me like public opinion is moving a little bit. I would say from the Democratic side, uh, my sense is that there were... Um, you know, I think a lot of Democrats um, have have long believed that that Trump deserves to be impeached. But I think there were more strategic differences within Democrats about whether um, you, get, leaving aside the questions of just desserts, whether it was tactically wise to move forward with uh, impeachment, because I think some Democrats and Nancy Pelosi would have been in this camp would say there's no end game here that um Impeachment ultimately winds up in the Senate, and unless uh, 20 Republican senators are going to vote to remove, we can only have a failed impeachment. What's what's going to be the good of that? And I think that was, you know, that was probably her viewpoint was probably a minority viewpoint within the Democrats, but it was a substantial minority. And I think what you're starting to see now is um, more Democrats feeling like it really is a good idea to go ahead with the impeachment. Um, and so I think within within Democrats, public opinion is consolidating. And I think you're starting to see the polls now saying 50 or 51% of the public now does want him impeached and removed. And I, I think most of that is, is Democrats and independents coming to that conclusion. I don't know that Republicans are really moving on it as much, but I think um, there, there used to be you know, a little more d- dissensus on that issue. Uh, within within the the, the the left and the center left, um, but I'm going to ask you about Republicans. Do you think Republicans are moving? Out? What do you think is the explanation for why uh, uh, maybe ten Republican senators will not sign on to Graham's bill? Well, I'm glad you bring the numbers up because that's one of the things that I had actually put out this past week uh, from from 5:38. Uh, they track. Um, uh, support for impeachment. And it, it's re- it, it's kind of fascinating to me. Democrats, even long before any of this happened, had a pretty high, in, in general, above 50% desire to impeach Trump, um, really almost from day one, which I, I think sent some of our listeners, they, they, they kind of found that particularly uh, fascinating. Now, right now, you know, you're right. Almost all of the bump in the polls we've seen has been Democrats coming from somewhere in the 70s um, up into the 80 percent. Independents haven't crossed uh, the 50-50 threshold yet. And Republicans, they they saw a little bit of a tick, but it kind of appears to be uh, just leveling off, uh, hitting right around 12 percent. Which begs the question, then, which you're kind of asking me is, why are senators not willing to come out on this? And I think the real answer here is, I'm not sure, unless you're Lindsey Graham, and I think you've lost touch with reality, I'm not sure what the what the advantage to coming out into this is if you're a senator. I don't think anybody's going to be uh, voting to help or hurt you at this moment on the basis of impeachment, because... The Democrats are the ones who have primarily moved. They're not going to vote for you anyway. And if you're a Republican and you come out too in advance and something crazy happens, then you look like a fool. I'm I'm not really sure what the win here is for Senate Republicans 
to take any kind of position. I mean, if I, if I was a Senate Republican or I was working for one of these guys, my answer would be, which seems to be a number of theirs positions, which is, well, I'm going to be a juror. I'm not going to talk about this right now because who's, who knows what's going to happen in, in the upcoming months? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. But I think maybe what Trump was hoping and what, you know, Graham was trying to help him with is um, that, that, that maybe a more more forceful public resistance to impeachment would um, stop uh, public opinion from moving any further towards impeachment than it already has. And uh, and that seems to have really backfired with, um, you know, with, with what, what, what Lindsey Graham did, because if he's saying, well, you know, here, here's 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 the number of senators that are against this impeachment, and it turns out to be forty two out of a hundred. Um, that that's pretty weak, you know. And I, but I think that Trump's idea was, well, it's going to be more than fifty, and so um, that'll that'll maybe throw some shade on the whole process of impeachment. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's always hard to kind of tell what's happening on the White House side, uh, you know, how coordinated those things really are. But I think from the more coordinated side, right, so you're, you're incumbent uh, Republicans in the Senate, I, j- I still, I just cannot see why backing this is going to help, especially given, I mean, the time, if you really want to start worrying about it is, I think, when you start getting independence significantly over the 50% mark. So if you start seeing independence tick up into the 60% range, I think that's when you have to start worrying and, and kind of wondering how you're going to have a response to that. Or if you happen to see um, Republican voters, I don't think it's likely, um, but to, to tick up over some, somewhere around or over the quarter percent or you know, 25% mark. Um, but in the meantime, I, I just don't know what the advantage is. Uh, the Democrat, Democrats, there doesn't seem to be a timeline and you have an election coming up and it very well could be the case that the election ends this question. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a, a prediction here. I don't always love making predictions. Oh, but here we go. I, I, well, you were the, the house, last time yeah, we made yeah. one. You, you yeah. were right, so yeah. I'll give you that. So I think the House will actually give have a majority vote of the full House to impeach um, by by uh, early December at the latest. Oh, December, um, really? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think. So, but now, why be... December? Because that seems like a time when you take the vote to kind of kill it. You know, you don't want to make it. Nobody's paying attention in December. Well, I, I think that what the um, Democrats are going to want to do, you know, they're, they're having all these um, closed door hearings now, which are becoming, you know, Gates and those people are trying to make it controversial. But um, but the purpose of the closed door hearings is actually to get the information in, in order to present it all publicly. And, and it seems to me things are moving along at a pretty good clip there. And I think that the Democrats are probably going to be ready, you know, fairly soon. You know, I'm going to say within a month. Um, to actually start having public hearings where, you know, they are televised and the witnesses are there and all the members of Congress are there um, where um, they lay the groundwork um, for the impeachment and then, you know, with the public, and then they're going to vote the articles of impeachment. Now, but now, you know, you maybe, really, now I mean, and this is not me trying to, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. push back too hard here, but do you think pragmatically that they're really going to do that if those numbers don't tick up during a break when people are going to be paying less attention. I mean, you know, right now you still haven't crossed that 50%. So do you really think that public uh, uh, hearings say in the first couple of weeks in December is going to be enough to bump those in a way, especially for, uh, for some kind of um, in conservative leaning district Democrats to want to get on board with that vote? 
I mean, even right now, I mean, yeah. one of the reasons for not having a vote, and I'm not suggesting right. the Trump line here uh, that you yeah. have to do that to have a proceeding, uh, but it's a tactical move by by uh, leadership, by Pelosi, to not have to put those people in in, a, in an electoral bind. Right. So, yeah. So I guess what I'm what I'm thinking is that um, all the hearings I'm talking about, the televised hearings, mm-hmm. that's all happening in November. Um, so the vote comes at the end of all that. So I, I think I think that the the people are November is the time that the public is still paying attention. And I think the Democrats will be less concerned with when the trial in the Senate takes place, because the trial in the Senate is actually the thing that I don't think the Democrats will mind if the public's not paying so much attention because, you know, Trump's unquestionably going to get um, uh, acquitted by the Republican Senate and, uh, um, you know, and, and probably McConnell. You know, technically, it's Chief Justice Roberts that runs the trial, but um, uh, all of his rulings can be overruled by the Senate Republicans. Um, I think they're going to try to make it a, a pretty quick proceeding as best they can. Republican input is going to be much greater in what happens at the trial in the Senate, and there's going to be an acquittal at the Senate. So I think the, the in terms of the part uh, that the Democrats are interested in um, really using to, to influence public opinion, it'll be the public hearings that terminate in the in the impeachment vote at the end. And so that's what I think is going to happen pretty much in November. And that as we get into early December, that's when the House is done. And I think the bet here, and I think it's going to be a winning bet, is that um, public opinion is going to be turned by the hearings. So, you know, with Nixon, um, he still had better than 50% favorable ratings just two weeks before he resigned. Uh, but it True. was uh, things things changed pretty quickly, though, once, you know, so I think I think that's the it's not so much that the Democrats are going to wait for public opinion to change. It's that this is how the Democrats are going to hope to change public opinion. Now, you, that is a uh, I, mean, I think a reasonable assertion. Now, I would question the comparison, not because I, I don't think we have similar circumstances in the political realm, but I'm not sure if the commu- that the political communication realm exists in the same way. I'm not sure that television and those hearings will alone be enough of the catalyst to push that forward in the way that it was during the era of, you know, the evening news and, you know, news on the hour on the radio. Um, But that's, that, that is a, I mean, I I can, I can respect the the prediction you're making there though, Ken. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I actually think you're right about that, too. I don't I mean, one thing is I don't expect it to change public opinion enough to cause uh, uh, 20 Republican senators to change their vote. I don't I don't think there is any end game here where Trump doesn't get uh, acquitted. But but I think um, Trump, uh, you know, could be damaged by this in terms of the public eye. And, uh, um, you know, November of this year, ending with a vote in early December, I think that's as good a time as any to do it. You know, but after that, you know the the campaign will start much more in earnest uh, in 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 the year 2020. The um, you know and, and I think the public's attention will be on that. But but I think the um, you know the the time the time to make that public case I think is sooner rather than later. And I think it's going to be the House proceeding rather than this trial in the Senate um, where the Democrats do try to make that public case. So before we move to the next the next issue, uh, I do want to ask a, a follow up question that occurs to me as you're talking about it. So it seems like you almost have two predictions then, Ken. Uh, one being that we're going to have uh, the vote uh, right here at the beginning uh, by December, but that the other one is is that it sounds like you're kind of your longer term prediction is it happens now because you really think it's going to be a bunch of sound and fury signifying nothing in the long run because then the attention all moves on 
to the election itself. Am, am, am I, am I yeah. hearing both of those correctly? Well, yes, except I wouldn't say Tale of Sound and Fury only because I think there's a reasonable chance that this is going to knock out some of um, it's going to reduce some of Trump's support, um, particularly from independents. You know, I don't I don't think it's going to hurt him a lot in, in the eyes of his base. I, I doubt he'll lose any of his base over this, but his base is only 25 or 30 percent of the electorate. And uh, um, so if, to the extent that independents are paying attention, you know, even if the Senate doesn't remove Trump, and I don't think they will, um, you know, you were talking about his unfavorables with uh, independents now, you know, I think you said they're now rough, he's roughly 50-50 with independents, but- Oh, now that, that was can, just for uh, uh, supporting for impeachment. the impeachment, uh, yeah. the impeachment. That, that, let's see, I'm not even sure what his uh, his unfavorables are at the moment. I don't have that up in front of me, Ken, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I don't know either, but I, I think, I'm just saying, I think um, it probably could change. You know, I think that the, uh, the, the, the if, 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 if independents are- kind of feeling open-minded and, and watching, um, the impeachment or, or reading coverage of it. Um, you know, I, I think that could turn them against Trump. So, it, it, so the impact would be felt during the uh, election. Um, so I don't think it's, there's no impact. I think there's impact, but the impact is primarily on, uh, electoral politics and maybe also to other extent on, um, what what um what the uh, government what the executive branch does moving forward it may it may feel it may be that the scrutiny will make um other people who work in the executive branch more more squeamish or more queasy about carrying out these kinds of um, things that are going to wind up being uh, similar to what what will be exposed at the um, impeachment hearings. Well, you know, now we'll have to definitely make sure that we're on the docket to talk uh, in the first yeah. weeks of December. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, we can either talk about it being right or wrong. Uh, but I, 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 I love it when we have something we're making a prediction about because you know we need to start tracking that because yeah, I think and I'm, I'm actually this is a challenge to the rest of our politics guys hosts. I think that the two of us when we've actually gone out on a limb and like made an actual prediction. Yeah, I think statistically we are better. I, in other words, I think we have a better batting average yeah, than I, agree, I think anybody both. else on the show. Yeah. So I'm I just going to so throw too. that out yeah. there for everybody else. So when yeah. you're listening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I just called out all of our other hosts right here in That's the end of the right. show. This, this is They'll great. have to start making some predictions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. No, not just any predictions, but good, good predictions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, another item, and this didn't happen immediately this past week, uh, but it's something that we didn't actually cover uh, on the show in, in the previous week. Uh, and that was that we've seen kind of the quiet sixth veto uh, of the Trump presidency. And, that, and that's a relatively high number at the moment. And the reason for this is, once again, uh, Trump is vetoing a resolution to end the national emergency declaration. So in effect, he's, he's vetoing his own party. Uh, and what was, what was particularly telling for me and why I kind of wanted to bring this up, Ken, was the way he did it. I'm particularly attuned. I'm, I'm, I'm a communication, a political communication scholar on that front. Media fascinates me. Uh, he does it at a dead time. He puts out his paper, but it, he doesn't tweet about it. Uh, it does not become an item. In other words, they put this out at a time that would purposefully kill it. And it really remained a dead story. I mean, you can head and take a look at his uh, his statement on it where he argues, quote, that the situation on our southern border remains a national emergency and our armed forces are still needed to help confront it, end quote. Uh, but it doesn't become a Twitter item. It does not happen on a Monday or a Tuesday. It gets buried 
late on the weekend <laughs> to yeah. not have this come forward. Uh, and so clearly it's Trump standing by what appears for him to be some kind of principle, uh, but not one he's willing to to put out. I, he, he obviously doesn't think it's going to win him a, a lot of friends, even among his supporters. Otherwise, I'm, I'm sure he'd be talking about it. So what do you think about the sixth veto uh, and and the fact that Republicans in this case are, are, are going against uh, the president to continue to bring it to him? Right. He has to keep vetoing this repeatedly. It's interesting. Actually, I was going to ask you because I don't know. Um have all six vetoes been on this this same issue that emergencies act or just the, there's some just other vetoes? half of them half of them okay yeah so there's a few other vetoes yeah well also it's not as bipartisan i mean it's bipartisan but so the, i think the vote in the um senate was f- 54 votes wanted to end the emergency but probably about 47 or 48 of those were democratic votes right so it's only about a half a dozen republicans maybe yeah, I, I think you had just over. I think it was in eight, I believe. Maybe Some, eight, something yeah. about there, about yeah. there, listeners. So, so he is vetoing a bill that's been passed by the Republican Senate, but it's um, he's really only going against a, 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 a handful of Republicans. Most of the Republicans voted on this the same way that, um, that in the same way that Trump's veto went. Um, to you know, most of them voted to extend the emergency. Now, he so. wasn't as fortunate among Republicans in the House, though. Uh, oh, that's is, right. Yeah, yeah, that was an overwhelming bill. You're right about that. Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, it's he's being prideful, obviously. He he, he has the power to um, uh, under, under he has the power to veto this bill. And the bill is a direct um, repudiation of what he did. So I think he's he's wants to veto that um, so that he's not accepting the repudiation. Um, I don't know that it's really getting him that much in terms of the the wall construction. I don't think very much has been done there. So I think it's primarily symbolic, but it's the kind of thing you'd expect from him, I guess. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, I guess a, a bit of it surprised me because, you know, one of the common messages, and I actually disagree with this, is that it's the Trump, the always off message Trump on Twitter. But I have kind of questioned that narrative in large part because when he's wanted to, this being an example, uh, he has been able to just not talk about something, which again makes me think that for all of its crazy bombast nature, uh, that uh, that he can, in fact, be on his own kind of on point or his, uh, you, know, you know, not talking about it. I, I don't think we quite give him enough credit for his use of social media. I think that we have taken that and assumed that it's craziness when maybe there's a little bit more of a strategy there. I mean, am I reaching too much here, Ken? I mean, it just feels to me like the fact that he didn't trumpet this, that he didn't have his early morning tweet storm is a sign that maybe those early morning tweet storms aren't as uh, sporadic as we, we, we might think. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you could be right, and I'm certainly not someone who can understand the way Trump thinks all that well. But I, <laughs> I, I think it, I think it could be simpler, though. I mean, I think it could just be that um, these bills being passed every six months are essentially scolding him, and he. I think sometimes he just doesn't want to draw attention to the fact that he's being scolded. I don't. I don't know if that's any anything more than just an emotional thing. I don't. I don't know that that has to be a strategic thing. So it, it could just be strategy. Uh... We're, it looks like it only because it's a strategy and an emotional response is aligning effectively. Yeah, I think that's possible. But I mean, you could be right, too. I don't I'm not really saying I know. I just think it could be either. No, I mean, I, I can't disagree. I don't think either of us have enough evidence. It's just been 
it, it has been a moderate to weak hypothesis in my mind that I, I keep wanting to have <laughs> some kind of data set that I can. <laughs> uh, so I, I think we have enough time to just maybe hit on one last uh, story, Ken. Uh, and that is is that we have Tulsi Gabbard today announcing on Twitter that she's not going to seek re-election to Congress in 2020. She wants to focus her attention on the presidency. Uh, and it comes in a week when she and Clinton just can't stop sparring. As a matter of fact, uh, today, as Clinton was promoting her new book with her do- uh, daughter, Chelsea, Chelsea Clinton, uh, c- took yet another shot at her, uh, arguing that she just doesn't know who she is and therefore, you know, then she's nobody and we shouldn't think about her. Uh, and this all goes back to our, uh, October 17, uh, when Clinton argued that Republicans were grooming Gabbard to spoil an election as their party candidate. Uh, now, uh, this is originally gets reported as her arguing that she's going to kind of be a, a, a Russian operative, uh, but that's not exactly what Clinton was saying in the podcast, uh, but that's how it's going to come out at, at, at the beginning. Uh, Gabbard's going to shoot back on Twitter against Clinton, arguing that Clinton is, quote, queen of warmongers and an embodiment of corruption, end quote. Uh, so I ask all of this, Ken, because... We here at the Politics Guys on our own kind of private channels have been going back and forth about is Clinton trying to get in the race or not? Is this why she's picking a fight? So what do you think about that? And and what do you think about uh, uh, the Gabbard-Clinton feud in just a few minutes? No, Clinton's definitely not going to get in the race. That's not even a, a possibility. So we have um, never agreed more on anything. Okay, so right yeah, there, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Some of my colleagues disagree, but on this one, I think yeah, yeah. the two of us. Full, I, I, yeah. I don't. I think it's a bunch of uh, anyway. But you no, know, I agree. Continue. Yeah, yeah. That's that's not not in the cards. Um, I, I think that to me, when I was trying to think, when when Clinton first made those remarks and it got reported. I, I thought it was an unwise thing for her to do, uh, for Clinton to do, because I thought it's it's divisive within the Democrats and the Democrats have a problem now that, you know, with so many candidates in, you know, they've got to be really guarding against divisiveness. You really don't want, uh, you know, people to get so so behind one of these candidates that if if the other candidate get, becomes the nominee, they, they don't want to support that candidate. So I, I really did not appreciate what Hillary Clinton did in terms of sowing division. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, now. I think Tulsi Gabbard, um, uh, she, she is up to no good. I'll just say that, you know, I, I think she, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what she's up to, you know, maybe, maybe she is going to launch a third party run and, and play a spoiler role. I think Clinton, maybe her emotions got the better of her Clintons did because I think she blames Jill Stein for her loss to Trump. Right. So I think when, when, when Clinton sees, um, a, a third party candidate who could take away, a small number of progressive votes in very close states like Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania um, could could flip those states, and that is that that I think that really is how how Clinton lost. If Jill Stein hadn't taken those votes in those states, if if even two thirds of the Stein voters had voted for for Clinton, um, she she would have won those states and won the election. So I think this this appealed, you know, just it it touched her in a in a, a visceral, emotional kind of way that there's someone else out there that's going to play that Jill Stein role and that's going to screw things up. Um, and I think it could be true. I mean, because uh, Gabbard is still raising money, right? She's raising money for her presidential run, but she's dropped her congressional run. And it's completely obvious she's not going to be the Democratic nominee. So what's she raising this money for? 
You know, and it seems to me the possibility is there that she's actually thinking of a third party run and that if she does do a third party run, um, that Republicans are, in fact, going to be finding ways to tacitly uh, support that. Um, and uh, and that's going to be very helpful to uh, Trump. So I think that's a very real possibility. It could also be the case that Gabbard is trying to do something like get a job on Fox News. It's it's not necessarily that she's doing a, a third party run. And I, I know Michael Baranowski told me that he that's what he thinks she's up to, that she's just trying to get a Fox News commentator gig or something like ah. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, and there we have like a, an off the record prediction. But but yeah. uh, Ken, it has been wonderful doing the show with you. Uh, but I want to let everybody know that if you're a supporter, you're not done yet because Ken and I, as soon as we get done here with the show, we're going to be doing a bonus podcast episode for our supporters. It's one of those supporters-only perks you get uh, when you support us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys or you head to politicsguys.com slash support. We've got so many cool things happening on that front. Uh, It has been amazing to me to see all the different bonuses we're going to get. And this week, you're going to get another first from the politics guys and it's going to come from uh michael baranowski as a matter of fact he is right now doing our first ever video response so he's actually going to be doing this week a uh, a video quick take uh for our supporters so if you want to see the first ever video politics guys that's happening this week it's happening with michael baranowski uh, and you can do that by heading to our patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys or you can go to politicsguyscom slash support and as soon as you do that you're going to be able to see both the bonus show and the bonus quick take show video style from mike if you've got a question a comment or a correction or just some random thought you want to share you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com Our Facebook page is where you can message us and we post throughout the week. It's at facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And I want to let you know that in the spirit of trying to make sure that even on social media uh, that we have a rational and civil debate, we've instituted some Facebook policies. We've gotten rid of ad hominem attacks and, and weird kind of memes so that it's a safe space for listeners to actually engage in conversation. So when Ken and I disagree, uh, you know, neither of us are at least visibly, you know, giving each other the finger or anything like that. Um, instead, I thought you were going to laugh at that, Ken. I was going to be honest. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, I, I, we hope that you'll find that new space uh, at facebook.com slash politics guys page, uh, much more uplifting, something you'd much rather see coming through your feed. Uh, we're also on Twitter at politics guys. So subscribing to the show really helps. And, but so does a lot of other free things. And that includes sharing episodes on social media, uh, posting about your favorite episodes, your favorite host, hooking us up that way is amazing. And we really do appreciate it. It's also incredible how important leaving re- reviews on iTunes and Spotify are, or whatever podcast podcast app you use. We really appreciate, uh, appreciate you. The executive producers of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Murano, Andra Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.